Well, take your Bible and open it over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. I think this is my eighth Easter message, though it's my seventh year I've been here. And I, you get to the point where you've, well, I've done that one, and I've, I've done that one, and I've, I've done that one, and uh, I've done that one, but I've not done Mark 16, 1 through 8. And it is a fascinating text on the resurrection. And we've got a little homework to do in the text, but it's, a, it's really an amazing account. It's very honest. It's very real, but of course, it's very supernatural. So I thought I would remind you of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Mark's Gospel 16, and let me read 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Zalame, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What a fascinating, fascinating text. It's both wonderful and it's also thought-provoking. I think uh, wonderful because the resurrection is the single greatest historical event in the early church, is it not? I mean, our whole hope is built on the resurrection. And yet it's thought-provoking because the content here in Mark chapter 16 is intriguing. It's somewhat abrupt. It's subtle. But as you will see, it is very, very powerful. And it is a combination of the everyday and even the supernatural that make this, I think, one of the most compelling accounts of the resurrection in all of the Scripture. Now, just a word for you as we dive into this, as I just read 16, 1 through 8. You're probably holding a Bible that uh, some Bibles just conclude at verse 8, and that's the end of Mark's gospel. But usually you have this finish in them. It, it concludes with the next section, which is verses 9 through 20. But what's fascinating in this and I don't want to make too big of a deal on this. There's books that have been written on the ending of Mark chapter 16. There are some of the Greek manuscripts, and there's a great family uh, tradition of manuscripts. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts in our, in, 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 in our possession. It's an incredible heritage. But it's interesting, the two oldest manuscripts... Um, omit verses 9 through 20. And so you probably have a little footnote that say that the two 
oldest, or they, we could use the other way, the two earliest manuscripts omit this. And we, and we kind of don't know exactly what happened to the end of Mark. Now, there's hundreds of other manuscripts that include verses 9 through 20. And uh, you might say, well, how are we going to deal with this this morning? Well, my text is Mark 16, 1 through 8. And so, like always, we're going to deal with that text. The reason that I say that to you um, is this, is that it could be that Mark's gospel, and many conservative scholars believe so, end at verse 8. And that's the end of his gospel. And if that's the end of his gospel, there's a real clear message for you this morning. And so today, just as we walk through 1 through 8, and there's nothing obviously wrong in 9 through 20, uh, I, when I exposited through Mark's gospel, included 9 through 20 in my teaching because it's found in hundreds of manuscripts. You know, it's just interesting how they put those uh, manuscript traditions together, and so that's why they leave you a little bit of a footnote. But what's intriguing to me is if it finishes at 8, look at the end of verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. <laughs> Here would be the ending. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I've titled this message, He is not here, just out of the text. He is risen. And what I'd like to do, just in the short time we have together, is arrange our text around three words. That way you can follow along pretty easy. And in even just three singular words, there's going to be the scene, okay? Secondly, the summons by the angel to these ladies. And then thirdly, I'll just call it the silence, okay? The scene, the summons, and the silence. Let's pick up the text of this first resurrection morning and look at this marvelous account together. Would you glance down and look at verse 1 with me under the scene? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Zalome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint him. Here clearly is the scene before us. The text says in verse 1 very clearly that Sabbath was over. Now don't forget, just as you think of Sabbath, we call this the Lord's Day here, but Sabbath for the Jewish people then and for the Jewish people now, it was like that I was in Israel in November, Sabbath is from basically sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. So basically from 6 p.m. on Friday and to 6 p.m. on Saturday. And if you're in Israel at that time, particularly in Jerusalem, all the shops will just close down. And then when 6 o'clock comes on Saturday night, the nightlife comes out. Now it's clear here under the scene that the Sabbath is over. And these three devoted women that are mentioned here, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Zalame, uh, went and bought spices, and Zalame went and bought spices in order to anoint the Lord's body. 
Now, these three women were not anticipating a resurrection. They obviously bought these spices to anoint the dead. Now, we know that Jesus, as we celebrated on Friday, died on the cross on Friday. It's three days later, and they go out on Saturday night, buy these spices, presumably not going to the tomb on that day. It was late at night, but going the next morning. They are going to anoint the dead. And for the Jews, to anoint the dead was an act of love. It not only was an act of love, it was used to offset the stench of a decomposing body. Now, you might ask the question, if you've been around the things of the Lord for any time, was he already anointed? And the answer, of course, would be what? Yes, he had already been anointed. John tells us in his gospel in chapter 19, you remember those two figures? Uh, It says that Joseph and Nicodemus, John 19, had a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 100 pounds in weight and took the body of Jesus off, you know, from that cross on Friday. And he, they bound him in linen wrappings and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So once he had died on that cross on Friday, they took him down and wrapped him in basically a hundred pounds of these spices. Now the question would be asked, why would these women come back to anoint him again? Well, I think you remember from the teaching of John in John chapter 11 that many Jews believe that on the fourth day after, the, after death, the spirit left the body permanently because of the decay. In fact, you remember Martha's response to Lazarus' tomb being opened. He said, by this time he stinketh, for he has been dead for days. So why do these ladies do it again? Perhaps, don't quite know why they did it again. Perhaps maybe just in their hearts, these three women, they thought maybe that was a hasty burial on Friday. Sabbath was coming in. Jesus was crucified. He died around 3 p.m. And maybe they thought there wasn't time for our Savior. And so they go out on Saturday night after the Sabbath. They buy these spices. They come in the morning and maybe... They just wanted to put these spices on him again. Perhaps they come back on the third day because they realized there was only one day left to anoint him before his body would decay. Or maybe it's even something else. Someone said that love love often prompts people to do from a practical point of view what is useless. And I think that's the case here. I think they knew he was anointed. I just think these three women so loved the Savior that they went out on Saturday night, bought these spices as the Sabbath closed, and then you'll see in a moment that they got up early on Sunday morning just to be with the Savior. These women loved the Savior. You know, you don't want to miss that in Mark 16. You say, well, where are the disciples? Well, I think you know, they all, what? Fled. Judas had betrayed him the night before on Thursday. He was, he was crucified. And then at the garden, and then in the arrest, and then in the trial, all 11 fled from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the time that they needed him most, 
They went AWOL on him, absent without leave, but not these women. Oh, no, no, they're, they're there. They're coming back to the tomb. In fact, not only did the disciples all flee, Peter denied him how many times? Three times, but these women were intensely loyal. And beloved, it's just my thought that one last time, they desired to reach out in love and devotion to their blessed master. But one thing's for sure, they're not coming back to the tomb thinking that the tomb's empty. They're coming back, as the text says, to anoint the dead. So you say, what happened? Well, look at the scripture in verse 2. It says, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went uh, to the tomb. So here it is, Sunday at dawn. Because of the restrictions of the, the Sabbath on Saturday, they couldn't go in the day. But on this Sunday morning, they rise early. One of the gospels says they rose even before dark, and they went to anoint Jesus. But as they're going to the tomb, they encounter a problem. Look at verse 3. It says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, there's a, there's a beauty here. There's a realness here, maybe a rawness here, that here are three ladies so engrossed in their eagerness to be near where the Savior was buried that, and to come anoint his body that they lost presence of mind over the large stone that had been rolled in front of this tomb. Now, Mark doesn't say anything here but Matthew adds in his gospel that they added the Roman guard there. But as these women are coming, almost blinded in their grief, they said, who's going to roll away the stone for us? But that wasn't a problem because look at verse 4. Looking up as they came into that area, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and Mark adds here in verse 4 that it was very large. Sometimes these tombs, small stones were put in the front. But here the text says, and in the language it says, it was very large. Now, they had seen the stone. You say, well, how do you know that? Look back in chapter 15. They were there at his burial. It says in chapter 15 in verse 46... Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, it says there, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And here it is again. There, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he had been laid and so they knew that stone. They knew how large it was. Now, Mark doesn't tell us, as you look there in chapter 16, it doesn't tell us how it was rolled away, but they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. But we know from Matthew's gospel that Matthew 28, verse 2 says that there was a severe earthquake. And it says there that the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. And so look what happened in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, 
and the Bible says that they were alarmed. Obviously, they enter a tomb. As you put the accounts together, there is an angel in that tomb. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, there's two angels in that tomb. And like another biblical passage, these angels are human-like. And this angel here in verse 5 is dressed in a white robe. It's the attire of heavenly beings all through Scripture. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, Revelation 7, uh, verse 13, they're in white robes. In John chapter 20, in verse 12, this angel is dressed in a very brilliant white robe. And Mark adds in his text, do you see it there in verse 5, that he was a young man. And they are, the Bible says in verse 5, alarmed. They're, beloved, they're just shocked. I mean, they're going there to, with spices that they bought to anoint the dead. And maybe as they pull around the corner, they begin to wonder, how do we get that large stone away? They come around the corner. The large stone is rolled away. And, and some of these, these uh, sepulchers in Jerusalem, you kind of have to bend down at the opening parts. And then you come in and you can stand up inside these tombs. And these ladies, these three ladies, remember the disciples aren't there, but these three are. They go into the tomb and they encounter this angel and the Bible says that they're alarmed. I mean, what would you do if you went to find Jesus and he's not there? And there's a man in there, a young man, but he's dressed in a white robe. They, they know something supernatural has taken place, and they're shocked. They're fearful is the word. And the angel could have spooked them and said, ah, you know, but he didn't. He, look what he said in verse 6. I love that. He said to them, do not be alarmed. And, and it's put in this language, do not be afraid. You seek, verse 6, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. What a text. What a text. There's no rebuke here. There was comfort. He told them to stop being afraid. There's no rebuke. And when the angel spoke these words, beloved, he altered human history. It is one of the greatest statements in the Bible. He is not here. He is risen. What a, what a statement by this angel. And you can imagine these women. And, and let me just take you just a step further about these women, because they're the first ones in the tomb, which I just think is precious. They're the first ones in there. Now, they went into an empty tomb, not to the resurrected Christ, but they're there, and they got the angel's word. But if you back up in the text, look back at John chapter 15. Let me show you something about these women. In John chapter 15, in verse 40, there, it says, There were also women, women looking on from a distance, among whom were, catch it again, verse 40, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Zalame, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and were there, there were also many other women who came up with Jerusalem. But understand, they were at the crucifixion. The other disciples 
had veiled in the garden. But they're at the crucifixion. And then remember, as I pointed out to you, there were two women at his burial. Look down at 15. We read that in verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they're not only at the cross, at that foot of the cross, they're there at the place he laid. And now on Sunday morning, they come back to that place that they had put him and they come into this empty tomb with the angel's speech. Let, let me just make an implication for you on why this is so significant. This text assures us that the same women are present at the cross, they're present at the burial, and they're present at the empty tomb. They give eyewitness accounts to the veracity of the resurrection event itself. So listen, as we open our Bible, we see the place that the Lord gave to these women who just loved our Savior. You say, if the Lord is not in the tomb, then what are they to do? Well, I take you from the scene, secondly, to the summons. To the summons. By that, I just mean the command. Look at it in verse 7. Here's what the angel tells them. But go, it's a... It's a command. Tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. In other words, he gave them a summons. I think really what the angel is saying to them is snap out of your amazement gently, snap out of being shocked, snap out of being alarmed. And I want you to go. And I want you to tell the glorious news of the Lord's resurrection from the dead. So I don't think it's hard to see the text. We move from the scene to the summons. And the angel gives these women a call to action. In other words, I want you to go. I don't want you to stay here. I don't want you to weep. I don't want you to pray. I don't want you to get your scriptures out of the Hebrew, maybe. I want you to go. I want you to tell. I want you to go back to the disciples. And I, I find this interesting because if you've read Mark's gospel, there were times earlier in Mark's gospel that Jesus commanded secrecy and sometimes he even said that open proclamation was disobedience, like don't go tell anybody this, but now at the resurrection, here he gives a command through this angel to tell of open proclamation, if you will, and secrecy here is a sign of disobedience. Now, in this summons, look again in verse 7. There's something particular here. He says, but go... Tell his disciples, and I love this little phrase here, you go and tell Peter. Now, it's interesting, none of the other gospels include this, but Mark does. In other words, he tells these women, I want you to go tell the disciples that he is risen and that he will meet you in Galilee, but he, he also singles out here Peter, and I love that. In fact, the summons, look at verse 7. He's going before you into Galilee. Now, 
he told them this. Look back in chapter 14 just for a moment. Chapter 14 and verse 28. And I'll just give you one, but there's many texts that say this. Jesus was foretelling of Peter's denial there. It says, when they had sung a hymn in 1426, they went out of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to, what? Galilee. Now, what's significant to me there is just keep reading. Peter said to him, even though all will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. He just told them, I'm going to raise from the dead and then I'm, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And, and what's tender here about this angel is he points Peter out. I mean, what if he pointed you out? I mean, there's just something tender about this. I mean, in, in, a, in a human element, he could have said, go tell the disciples, accept that triple denier, right? He could have said, go tell the disciples, accept the one who not once, but twice, not twice, but three times denied me. No, there's a note of tenderness here. He says to these women, here's this command, stop weeping, stop praying, don't stay here. Later he's going to tell one of these women, stop clinging to me. I want you to go back to the disciples and I, I want you to go back to Peter. You say, well, what's significant about that for you? Well, there's a lot of significance there that God, I would say this, completes his plan Despite human failure. Amen? He's in control of this. He was in control of the mocking and the spitting and the abuse that he prophesied about that he would face when he came into Jerusalem. And now he's in control of this. He said, I'm going to rise again and I'm going to go before you before uh, in Galilee. I mean, listen, beloved, if the word of grace from the resurrected Lord includes a traitor like Peter, then be assured that it includes those of us who have also failed Christ. You may be here this morning, and you may just be visiting today, and you may just think, I've done something, or something happened, and somehow you're here today, and you think maybe the Lord could never restore you. But listen, if he restored Peter, then amen, he can restore you. I mean, I think this account is demonstrating, again, the sovereignty of God. In fact, look, look down again at the text in 16.7. He says, he's going to go before you in Galilee. There you will see him. And I love this last line. Just as he, what? Told you. In other words, he's going to rise again. In fact, you want to see it one more time in Mark's gospel? Look back at 18.31. He said he was going to rise. Go back to Mark chapter 8, excuse me, Mark 8, in verse 31. Remember, he's prophesying his death here. He was teaching his disciples in Mark 8, 31, saying to them, Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, here it is, after three days, he will rise. But look at the next verse. 
they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Oh, beloved, he just kept telling them, but they, they couldn't hear. That, excuse me, was Mark 9.31. But look over at chapter 10 and verse 32. 10 and 32, they were going on the road up to Jerusalem. 10.32, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, and t- talking to the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, the word for scourge there, and kill him. And here it is again in 34. And after that, three days, he will rise again. So he says to, the, to these women, as you come back to Mark 16, I, I want you to go now. I, I, I'm giving you a summon. I'm telling you, go back, tell the disciples, tell Peter specifically, go wait for him in Galilee. And I love that statement, just as he said. You say, well, well what happened with the summons? Well, you can read it. We did. Look at verse 8. Here's what happened. Okay, It says, they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. I mean, you, they encounter this angel and they're, they're like fleeing out of the tomb. But I don't think you can just flee. I think he would have had to go like this and then duck down and they're... They're fleeing. They're they're running. And it says that they're trembling. And it says that they're astonished. They're just shocked, beloved. And it says that astonishment had seized them. It's like a grip came on them. When I was a little boy, I used to have a vice grip in in the garage. And I used to put uh, things in that vice grip and just squeeze down on that vice grip so that whatever was in that vice grip that was on a table that was kind of attached over here, nothing could get out. And as these ladies leave, they're just astonished. They're alarmed. They're seized. It's almost like they're frozen. And then look at the last phrase in verse 8. And they, I mean, I'm just reading to you the text. They said nothing to anyone, for they were, what? Afraid. Now, I'm just trying to deal with the text as a Bible expositor. From the scene to the summons, thirdly here, to close, the silence. They said nothing to anyone. I mean, that's what it says. It says they were just fearful. This astonishment had gripped them. Now, it's interesting. In the other text, you have to put them together. In a sense, you have to put them together. Because they're all looking at the details from a different angle sometimes, aren't they? Not completely, but a little bit. But you're reading Mark's account. They fled. They're trembling. They're shaking. Astonishment just put them frozen in a vice grip. But the Bible says here, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, it's interesting. In Matthew's gospel, it says that they left the tomb. Can you finish the statement? They left the tomb in 28.8, 
with fear and great, what? Joy. Okay. So you say, well, what is it? Well, I mean, it's got to be a combination of both. They're, they're fearful, but they left with great joy. But in this one, after the summons, we are met with silence in verse 8. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I think it's fascinating, beloved, that the women fled from the tomb, just to be honest. Just as the disciples fled in the garden from the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion. They were all seized with trembling and fear. And the women told no one what they had seen and heard, at least initially. I mean, I think you'd have to be fair with me reading the text. They were disobedient momentarily. He said, I want you to go and tell. But the Bible says they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, now, this is odd to me, because I would have thought, at least today, the way people in ministry think in the 21st century, that they would have started a new organization here. I think they should have started the, the now, the N-O-W-E. They should have started the National Organization of Women Evangelists. But they didn't. You say, well, what did they do? Well, at least in the text, they're silent here. Now, to be fair, the focus here in the text is their immediate response. It's certainly not the final outcome. Eventually, according to Luke 24, 8 and 9, they delivered the message. They were silent here, but their silence was temporary, but they were silent. They at least momentarily disobeyed the summons. I, I don't know another way to say it. They were speechless, is what the Bible says. They were frozen. They were alarmed. They were fearful. They were afraid. You say, well, Scott, what made the difference? You have to ask that question. Well, certainly here, it wasn't the empty tomb that made the difference. You say, well, why can you say that, Scott? Because they went out and they were silent. They needed an encounter with the resurrected Lord that would produce the faith that they needed that then would be, provide you an eyewitness. You say, well, what do you mean they needed an encounter of the resurrected Lord. Well, let me show you. Look in your Bible over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You've got to see this. It is John, the apostle's account of the resurrected Lord. And of course, these women are in it, and they all correspond and parallel with each other and bring out richness and color. You say, well, what if they went out silent, did it just finish that way? Well, putting the biblical revelation together, no, it didn't. You say, well, what happened? Let me read it to you in John 20, 1 through 3. Now, on the first day of the week, here we are again. Mary Magdalene. Hey, by the way, you know this. I've already told you this. You say, who's Mary Magdalene? She's the woman that had not one, 
not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven demons cast out of here, out of her. This was her savior. She watched him died, die, crucified. She watched him laid in the tomb. She comes back on Sunday morning and the tomb's empty. But this is Mary. You understand a little bit of her devotion? The one who was controlled and possessed by demonic evil spirits? Seven of them. And Jesus cast all those demons out of her. She was fully devoted. She was fully committed. So you say, look at it again, 20. First day of the week, Mary Magdalene came up to the tomb early. The Bible says while it was still dark, we think that she left when it was dark, got there as the sun had risen, and saw that, sun, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, it doesn't say right here what we just read, but so she ran, and she went to Simon, Peter, and the other disciples. So in one sense, she went and told them, and she said, the, she, the other disciple, of course, it says there in 20, verse 2, the one whom Jesus loved, we know that's John the Apostle, and said to them, now, you notice what she says, it's key here. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have, what, laid him. She ran from the tomb in Mark's gospel, came back to the disciples, not proclaiming the resurrection I don't know how she would have said that. Maybe we can ask her in heaven. But I just think so overwhelmed they have taken the Lord from the tomb. And we don't know where they put him. Now, she's not declaring a resurrection. So look at verse 3. Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. And they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in. So John got there first. He looks in. You understand it's a low uh, sepulcher, if you will. He stoops. He, he, he looks in. It says there in verse 5, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And then Peter came, and you understand Peter's temperament, following him. He went right into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in and he saw and he believed as of yet they did not understand the scripture that he must, what, rise from the dead? Then the disciples, I always think this is a funny verse, it's kind of like, well, I don't know what to do now. So uh, they just, uh, they, uh, I don't know. I, we, we, we went in there. It's not there. These two guys were in there. Pretty brilliant. But they're just, they just, they go back home. You say, but what happened? It's not the end of the story. Keep reading. Would you look at 20 verse 11 with me? Follow this carefully. But Mary, there she is again. Magdalene stood weeping outside the tomb. You say, wait, wait what, why is she there? Well, it said she, as she wept, she stooped to, to look into the tomb. In other words, she came back. 
right? You just read that she left the tomb and went to tell the disciples. The disciples went home. And John just says she came back by herself. And she saw the two angels, verse 12, uh, in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, you, you just think, as we read that, as I do, she's crying. <laughs> but in the language, she is profusely weeping. She's not just got tears in her eyes. She's, do we use the word, bawling her eyes out. Woman, why are you weeping? Verse 13. She said to them, and again, you understand, lacking faith here, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. Where did he go? I mean, what happened here? I turned the corner and the stones rolled away, and I, I don't know, where did, they, where did they put him? And having said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. This is amazing. But she did not know it was Jesus. And you say, how did, he, how did she not know? Because he veiled himself like he did on the way to the, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There's something in biblical theology that until Christ opens the eye, sometimes people can't perceive by the eye of faith. So Jesus, in some way, did not disclose himself to her at this point. So she saw Jesus standing, but he did not know it was Jesus. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this is funny, I think. Supposing him to be the what? The gardener. The lawnmower guy. I mean, it's kind of funny. She, she didn't know. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, can you hear it in her voice? If you have carried him away, tell me, where did you put him? Where have you laid him? And then she says this with utter faith, I'll just take him away all by myself. It doesn't say all by myself, but she's the only one there, at least in this account. I'll just, I'll just take him away all by myself. I'll just pick him up. And I mean, she's just overcome with grief. Until one word was spoken. Look at it in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And it doesn't say right here. Jesus said to her, do not what? Cling to me. I just think when she turned around and he revealed himself, she, I think she just went and clung to him. Just clung to his foot and clung to his legs, if you will. And he, he had to say there, stop clinging to me. I, I think Mary was thinking, hey, you got away from me once. I'm not going to let go of you again. And so she's just clinging to him out of devotion. And look what Jesus said to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And here's the summons again from himself, the Lord himself. Go and tell to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And here it is, Mary Magdalene went, I love that phrase, and announced to the disciples, now catch the language, I 
have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. I love that. I now have seen the Lord and that he said these things to me. I mean, Mary, one moment is weeping and then just at the call of her name, all is changed. It is no longer where have they laid my Lord, but I have seen the Lord. And beloved, the mourner becomes a missionary and the weeper becomes a worshiper. The one who had seven, seven demons cast out of her. And here's what you need to know. She, Mary Magdalene, was the first eyewitness to the greatest event in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from death and from the grave. The first eyewitness, and I just think it's precious. It's a woman, not one of the disciples. They would meet Christ finally in Galilee. You can go read that in Matthew 28 at the Great Commission. When he gave them the Great Commission, he gave that commission in Galilee. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, fulfilled all that he stated. But if you go back to just Mark 16 for a moment... I just filled in, hopefully, with some color the other parts, but Mark, if his gospel concludes here, and I don't, I preached 9 through 20 because it's in a number of quality manuscripts, but maybe he concludes with a dramatic finish. To his gospel, if, if that's fair. The last phrase, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Listen, beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive. Amen? He's alive from the dead. He is a conquering king. He is reigning over the grave, over death itself, and he has commissioned you to go and tell a lost world. So just maybe, the ending is really not the ending. The ending, at least if we put all of the accounts together, but left it at verse 8, at least in our text, is a challenge to you and to the church to go and tell the entire world about the resurrection. It could have been that Mark just left it right there for you to finish. And so I'm asking you as a church, are you a silent witness? Maybe that was the point of Mark. They said nothing to anyone and maybe you haven't opened your mouth to anyone and we can look and see the full color but did Mark's gospel end there all I know is I could say it this way that you have been given a summons every one of you to go and tell the world 
Mark is not finished with his gospel until it is finished in you and me through your bold witness to the resurrection. And the message is this. He is not here. He has risen. Beloved, the tomb is empty. Our Lord is risen from the dead. And these women not only were a witness of the empty tomb, but these women as well as the disciples were an eyewitness to the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you and I have been given a summons. You know, it's great to to be here on Easter, but we live in the truth every day of the hope of eternal life, don't we? And the truth of the matter is, is just as he summoned those women and he summoned the disciples at Matthew 28, he summoned you and me as a church to go and tell all the world. You say, well, I'm afraid. Well, maybe these women were afraid and the Holy Spirit was soon coming to give them the strength and the courage and the opportunity to share the good news. But listen, here we are on April 21st. Before us is a whole year. Here's my prayer for you high school students in this place. You got somebody that sits in front of you. You got somebody that sits on your right. You got somebody that sits on your left in four, five, six classes. You got somebody that sits behind you Sometimes five days a week, sometimes three days a week. Are you going to go and tell? Or are you just here, comfortable, quiet, not very vocal? Moms, you going to go and tell? You going to share with the people on the soccer team or the track team or the, the basketball team and build relationships? I just think there's a summons here for us, for you men, even for our younger kids, the reality of this truth. Listen, we've been given a command, and we need to go tell people that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that he lives today for us. And on our behalf, isn't it a great promise that one day he'll take us into glory with him? So listen, may it be that where they were silent, you will speak. Amen?